one of the advantages of listening to Pitchfork Economics is Correct. that you get to listen to Nick talk to the person <laughs> yeah. who designed the CHIPS Act yes. and explain it to you. The CHIPS Act is going to help make sure that we diversify our supply chains, that we make more here in the United States of America. And that's not just going to protect our national security. It's also going to create a lot of economic opportunity. When you think about it, it makes you optimistic. We can do big things. No, I, it's, I feel the same way, Nick. If only people knew. From the home offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, the best place to get the truth about who gets what and why. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm David Goldstein, senior fellow at Civic Ventures. Goldie, it's been a little over a year since President Biden signed the Chips and Science Act, which intends to rebuild the semiconductor industry in the United States. And I just couldn't be more excited to have our friend Ronnie Chatterjee come on the podcast to talk about that because he... He was the chips man. He was the, he was a deputy director of the National Economic Council uh, until a, a month or so ago, and was the the coordinator for the chips program within the White House. And you know, the chips bill was uh, designed to effectively reindustrialize the United States in this sector and bring chip manufacturing back to the United States which is an enormously important and consequential endeavor. And, you know, Ronnie is definitely one of the smartest and most interesting people I've met in D.C. over the last few years. Yeah, it's an important it's an important program, Nick. And I don't think it's it's very well understood or has been very well explained by definitely. the media. And I think one of the advantages of being you yeah. is that when you have questions about something like the CHIPS Act, you get to go meet with the guy who designed it and have him exactly. explain it to you in person. Yes, exactly. And that means that one of the advantages of listening to Pitchfork Economics is Correct. that you get to listen to Nick talk to the person <laughs> yeah. who designed the CHIPS Act yes. and explain it to you in person. Right. So you're just, it said, I don't know, Nick, is it trickling down? I don't, maybe. <laughs> I, well, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. But it, but it's, it, you know, the CHIPS Act was really one of the coolest pieces of legislation that the, you know, that the Biden administration passed. In fact, that any administration has passed in a very, very long time. But it's so wonky and so technical and so hard to understand that, you know, I think basically nobody knows about it. So today, uh, dear listener, you're going to hear from perhaps the world's leading expert on what it was and what it is and why we did it and what the benefits will be. Uh, so with that, let's talk to Ronnie. I'm Ronnie Chatterjee. I'm a professor of business and public policy at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, and formerly the White House CHIPS coordinator uh, and served for over two years in the Biden administration. So, Ronnie, tell our audience what CHIPS is and how you got involved. <laughs> sure. So I can start by where I got involved. It started in uh, April of 2021 when I joined the Commerce Department as the chief economist. And Secretary Raimondo came to me with a question. And as an economist who's worked in government before, including in the Obama administration, with a lot of business leaders across industries, 
I thought I'd heard them all, all the kinds of questions you would get about economics and economic policy. But when she came to me with that question in 2021 uh, spring, uh, it was a question I hadn't heard before. And she basically asked, what's going on with all the wood? And I said, excuse me, you know, what, what do you mean? Lumber? And she said, yeah, lumber prices are reaching all-time highs. Is this a supply chain issue? Is there something else going on? How do you figure out what's wrong with this market and how we fix it? And, you know, as someone who had worked in policy before, I'd never known who the supply chain person in government was. You know, in the Obama administration, if you had asked me who's the supply chain person, I wouldn't know where to look. Maybe it was me, but I wasn't sure. But here in the Biden administration, I found myself on point for figuring out how supply chains worked. And I think at the same time I was doing that, this was happening all across the world because in Europe, in Asia, um, in particular, key supply chains were being snarled and policymakers were being forced to grapple with the questions that none of them really had a toolkit for. We didn't have the right data. We didn't know what questions to ask. And honestly, we didn't even know the language to use. So I went about investigating the lumber market and came up with some interesting insights. And when prices started coming down uh, a few months later, I took credit for it, but I don't think it was just me. Um, <laughs> I, I think, you know, I, I can show you a graph that says, you know, Chatterjee joined and prices go down. But we know, we know that's not how it works. But what I did find is a method to approaching these supply chain bottlenecks. And we ran that playbook again with steel. We ran it with PPE. We ran it with aluminum. And that's when I first started to really get in depth with semiconductors, computer chips uh, being the kind of more common vernacular. You know, we had a chip shortage during much of 2021, and it had a lot of impacts on the macro economy. Um, you know, one thing you'll see directly was that there's a lot of computer chips in automobiles. And one third of core CPI, the consumer price index, which is one of the indices we look at to measure inflation, one third of that was driven by auto prices going up in 2021. And so think about that, one third of inflation coming from autos, and a big part of that was we could not get the chips. And so folks right. like and, me- and, and, and Ronnie, a, a modern car has like a thousand chips in it or something like that, <laughs> that right? That's, it, it, that's correct, that's correct. And electric vehicles are gonna be more. Yes. And the problem is if one if one is missing, you can't drive the car, right? That's exactly right. Yeah. That's exactly right, Nick. And you look at dealer lots and you'd see all these cars and you'd say, what's wrong with that car? Why can't you sell it? Well, we don't have the chips in. You know, we, we can't sell it because we don't have the chips. And, you know, look, it could be something like the driver assist system, the thing that beeps when there's someone in the adjacent lane. It could be uh, your airbag or your tire pressure monitor, all things you need in the car. So that's really how I got started working on chips. And then in August 2022, we passed the Chips and Science Act. And at this point, I should tell you what I told my kids that day, which is that CHIPS stands for Creating Helpful Incentives for the Production of Semiconductors. Right? We're, we're, we're good at nothing else if not branding. So CHIPS and Science passed in August 2022. I was there when the president signed the bill, and he said, today is a day for builders. And what CHIPS is going to do is build manufacturing facilities across the United States to make CHIPS. We're going to build research and development facilities across the United States to make sure that we maintain and extend our leading chips. And we're also going to support the kinds of diplomatic engagements and workforce investments we need to make this reality. So that's how I got started. That's where I ended up managing the chips implementation for the White House. And I spent the next year working down the National Economic Council after leaving the Commerce Department, uh, starting the program and basically setting up the implementation across multiple government agencies. So that's, that's what I did and where I came from and why I'm proud to have done that work. But wait a second, you claim to be an economist, and I remember my Econ 101 textbook, and it tells me that government spending like this is just going to crowd out 
private investment. So you're going to destroy chip manufacturing in the U.S. Is that what happened? No, it's not. And Goldie, you know, I think you're one of those people that, you know, you took Econ 101, but I'm going to politely recommend that we take Econ 102 and maybe some further economics classes because, right? And I know you're being facetious. I'll admit, Ronnie, I did not take Econ 101. I'm one of those weirdos that just read the textbook. (laughs) Even better, even better, because when you read it, you understand how markets fail and how some of the assumptions of sort of economic modeling really fall short on key national security uh, reasons. So you think about this, I mean, it may make economic sense with some simple model from Econ 101 that all the chips are just made in one part of the world, including the most advanced chips and the ones that go into our missile defense systems, our satellites, all of our military work. It may make sense that all that's being made in one place from sort of an efficiency perspective. But certainly from a national security perspective, it doesn't. We need resilience. We need to make sure these chips are coming from multiple places. And the CHIPS Act is going to help make sure that we diversify our supply chains, that we make more here in the United States of America. And that's not just going to protect our national security. It's also going to create a lot of economic opportunity. And that's where I think um, sort of Econ 101, 102, and beyond are really strongly supportive of what we're doing with the CHIPS program. Yeah. So can you just speak to that a little bit more, Ronnie? I think that, you know, the CHIPS bill is about a lot more than shoring up our supply chains. Chips today are one of the most vital technologies powering our economy and enabling technological leadership in a lot of industries. And, you know, America used to dominate that. And now, over the last 30 years, we we allowed ourselves to fall farther and farther behind. And uh, I think what's most exciting about this bill is addressing that deficiency, that weakness. I I think you're right, Nick. I mean, when I talk to folks uh, here in North Carolina and across the country, what they get excited about is the idea that, that we ought to lead the world in these key manufacturing industries. And, you know, all of them know that we used to lead the world in this. I mean, chips yeah. were invented in the United States right. of America. When you think about the story of the first computer chips, um, you know, we needed them to power the space program. And the Air Force was a big purchaser of chips. And that drove a ton of commercial investment to try to satisfy that demand. And over time, right, the commercial providers started to get better and better in what they were doing. And we essentially created a commercial market for chips based on those early investments from the government. It goes back to Goldie's um, sort of point there, which is that you know even the most innovative industries we think of today as coming from some sort of uh, free market milieu, actually they came in many places through government contracts, seeking right. investment. And then they ended up being sort of commercial leaders. And that's exactly what happened in the chips industry. So we used to make one third of all the most advanced chips in the United States of America in 1990. And um, as recently as last year, we were making less than 10% or about 10% of those chips here in the United States. And if you look at the very, the cutting edge, the leading edge of chips, we really don't make any of those in the United States anymore. We design a lot of the chips, but they're made elsewhere. Right. And that, um, that division between where we make stuff and where we invent stuff ends up being a big vulnerability because chips go into everything, not just automobiles. But the electric grid, your washer dryer, your refrigerator, anything with an on and off switch. And that's why the CHIPS Act is so important. Yeah. And I think it's what's really inter- what's really important to underscore is that it was policy that produced that leadership in the first place. It was policy that let it slip away. And it definitely was the policy of our global competitors 
that enabled them to dominate these industries. So, for example, Taiwan, which currently dominates chip making, that didn't happen as a consequence of the pluck of a few entrepreneurs. The government of Taiwan made huge investments uh, to make that that industry go in that place, as did Japan and South Korea to gain a foothold for those countries, too. So if you want to, I mean, I, th I think what's really important to remember is that if you want to compete in this domain, it's an all hands on deck endeavor, right? Yes. It's not like opening uh, a restaurant. <laughs> no, no. And, and yeah. to your point, Nick, I mean, that's where the leaders are today. Exactly. exactly. Where those massive government investments were made. TSMC right. in Taiwan, the Japanese companies are very active in the chemical space that's key for chips. And of course, Samsung and other uh, uh, companies in South Korea. And it's no coincidence that it was government policy. And so I think, you know, President Biden stood there in August uh, 2022 after signing a bipartisan bill, because I think both Republicans and Democrats realized that we need to be doing this here in the U.S. And because of the national security importance alone, I think you've got a lot of folks on board. But the economic opportunity, my goodness, to create these fantastic jobs across the industry, that's a whole other opportunity that we're working on and something I'm really passionate about. So that's that's where I think I think we're starting to turn the corner because of the CHIPS Act. $161 billion of private sector investment since the CHIPS Act was passed. Goldie, that's the answer to your question. You know, We haven't sort of crowded out private investment. We've crowded it in. And that's what I'm really proud of. So give us more detail about what the bill itself does. Break it down for us. Sure. So we have $52.7 billion of appropriations for the CHIPS and Science Act. There's other parts that are in the text that there's not appropriations for. So it's really important to remember where the $52.7 billion is going. The lion's share of that money, about $39 billion, is going to the Commerce Department to finance manufacturing investments in the U.S. So when you build a big factory in America, they're called fabs. When you build these fabs in America, the government can support the construction of those fabs, and any company, domestic or international, is eligible if they're building in the United States, and they satisfy the requirements of the program, which we can get into um, in a little more detail. So $39 billion will go towards that. $11 billion in a separate uh, unit in the Commerce Department will go to financing research and development. And I do want to pause on that for a second because we know R&D is not sexy, but it is essential to us maintaining our lead, essential in terms of having a vibrant industry, because we're not going to lead the next generation if we're not inventing today. And so we've fallen behind in several of those key research development uh, metrics, and the $11 billion for the CHIPS Act will set up a National Semiconductor Technology Center, which will be a hub of activity for research and development to make sure that we lead the world again in CHIPS research. Uh, the balance of the money is for diplomatic engagements with our partners and allies and workforce and training programs for the National Science Foundation. Wow. So is that R&D hub going to be physically located somewhere or is it a distributed sort of thing? That It's a policy call right now. There will be a physical presence for the National Semiconductor Technology Center, but the Commerce Department, and this is one of the things they started to lay out under uh, in partnership with myself at the White House, to figure out what the best way is to get the bang for the buck on R&D. You know, as you all know, uh, in technology businesses, there can be a lot of great opportunity from people being co-located in one place, trading ideas. Yeah. On the other hand, you want to take advantage of knowledge from all across the United States of America and attract the brightest. And so there's a balance there between a centralized hub and a distributed model. And, uh, and I'm confident the groundwork we laid, they'll get it right. Wow, that's awesome. 
the other the other pieces I just mentioned in the bill, one is the Treasury Department is releasing guidance for a tax credit. Again, these are some of the things that are really powering a lot of our industrial strategy through the IRA, and it's true in chips as well. That tax credit, 25% investment tax credit on qualified investments in manufacturing facilities, will be a huge incentive to build here in the United States. Proud to have been uh, part of the group that led that effort to release the preliminary guidance, and now they'll be finalizing it soon. And then finally, the Department of Defense has a microelectronics commons program that will make sure that the chips that are really important for military applications are also getting the research development that they need. So it's really a full spectrum program uh, across a bunch of agencies. Getting those agencies to work together uh, really was my full time job for the last year. And, uh, and I, think, I think they're off to a great start. So can you tell us more about what has already happened? I mean, you said there's been about $150 billion of private investment already. That must not account for future investment against these tax incentives. Yes. And to be clear, that's $150 billion, and and the $39 billion really hasn't been spent yet. You're right. You're right. That is, I think that's the first headline, I'll tell you. I mean, when you talk about $161 billion, we are talking about investments that the private sector is making before any of the money has actually been invested from the CHIPS Act. And so I think what's amazing is, you know, the signal of President Biden, right, sort of signing the CHIPS Act with bipartisan support, putting the world on notice to say, we're going to build in America again, and we're going to build the most advanced technologies. That has led the private sector to put huge bets down in America, across the country, including in my home state, North Carolina, in Texas, New York, Ohio, Oregon, all across the country. And now, as they're seeking to allocate the CHIPS money, you're going to see more investment that goes on top of that. But that $161 billion is just before the money has been handed out. And I think that what accomplishment number one is basically setting a tone for the investment environment. And back to Goldie's point, a lot of folks think that when government sort of is trying to strategically support sectors, it's going to result in inefficiency or less private market activity. Well, here's the counterexample. The president signed the bill and we got more investment. And other countries are looking around trying to figure out how they're going to do the same. And now we're in the stage where we're releasing notices of funding. Notices of funding are basically documents that tell applicants how to apply for the funds. It's a very wonky but important step in government to say, here's how you apply. Here's the things you need to abide by. Here's the things you can and can't do. And then it results in applications. And I will tell you, the other big milestone, over 400 statements of interest, which is the sort of the first step in the application process from organizations around the country. So for folks who said that we wouldn't have enough interest or there were uh, somehow too many restrictions, clearly that's not borne out by the data. 400 applications or 400 statements of interest already that will translate, I'm sure, into many applications. So that's where we're at uh, in terms of the program getting set up, all this within a year of it being passed. But how can you possibly make a profit building chips in the United States if you have to provide daycare to your workers? <laughs> Goldie, it's uh, it seems impossible to me. In a, uh, explain. You know, Goldie, it was interesting when that that provision uh, was discussed a lot. I think what people missed in that discussion, and I just think it's been so long since we've had these conversations in America before, particularly you know when it comes to the opinion newspapers and stuff like, or opinion pages of major newspapers. But when you think about this, the companies that are by and large in this industry are already providing childcare for their employees mm-hmm. across the world. And the idea that they couldn't do that in the United States, that somehow it would make 
um, you know, making these very complicated chips unprofitable. I mean, I just knew that that wasn't going to stand up to scrutiny. And I, I just waited knowing that we'd see a lot of statements of interest from industry. Also, having, you know, been someone in government who interfaced a lot with industry, I knew that that was not going to be um, a major sticking point at all. That was something that these companies knew how to do. And so, you know, when I saw those uh, those articles and those opinion pages, I just thought, you know, they need to actually talk to more people in industry and in business. And they realized that, you know, we'll, we'll have challenges, no doubt. But providing childcare to your employees or coming up with a plan to do so, definitely not one of them, not reflected at all in the interest we've seen in the program. What does the future look like? I mean, where have we seen, when I was last in DC and we were hanging out in your office, you gave me a really interesting example of what was happening just in your, in your little neighborhood where you work uh, near Duke. Yep. I can tell you, I can just paint a picture. Just of it anecdotally. I, yeah. yeah. Of course. Of course. You know, cause look, when I'm, when I'm on the sidelines watching my kids play soccer, people don't know what the chips act is. Yeah. They don't know the amount of money. I mean, people have obviously more important things in their daily life to focus on and they just want the bottom line, you know, what's going on. And so what I'll say is, you know, have, have you seen the new, you know, investment that we're making in North Carolina, $5 billion to build silicon carbide chips here in North Carolina by a company called Wolfspeed. And a lot of people have heard of that because President Biden came down here and I was proud to accompany him here to announce that investment. So why is Wolfspeed and silicon carbide so important? Well, silicon carbide is basically used to produce chips that are really good in particular industrial applications. One of those is electric vehicles. And then folks start to say, okay, well, where are those chips going to go? Well, it turns out there's a company called VinFast, a Vietnamese company um, that's setting up an electric vehicle production plant right here in North Carolina, uh, very close to where all this is happening. And that company is going to buy the silicon carbide semiconductors from Wolfspeed. And then you start to think, oh, gosh, okay, now we see the link between electric vehicles, which you know is so important to the climate transition and the connection to chips. And that market is going to scale up as more EV suppliers or more EV uh, companies are buying uh, chips and silicon, and silicon carbide equipment. Then the next piece is batteries. You need an EV, you need batteries, right? Well, Toyota is building a battery plant here in North Carolina, uh, in, near Greensboro, which is, again, in this triangle triad region that, um, that I'm proud to live in. So again, you have Toyota, you have VinFast, and you have Wolfspeed. And it's a mix of companies from all around the world choosing to invest here in North Carolina, creating tremendous opportunities for folks. And the last piece is the other thing you need for batteries is lithium. Well, there's a lithium processing company in North Carolina, Albemarle, which is located near Charlotte. So you put all those, those, two th those things together, you start to see the beginnings of what industrial strategy looks like at the ground level. It's creating jobs, um, particularly for folks who don't need a college degree to do things in manufacturing. It's creating advanced manufacturing roles that are gonna pay well, and it's connected both to the climate transition, but also national competitiveness and national security. We can lead the world, be more prosperous, more safe with clusters like this in North Carolina and around the country. And when I started to just tell folks about the companies, the jobs, what's going on, that's when people really get it. That's when I got it, when I saw what was happening right here in North Carolina and similar stories across states uh, in the entire country. You know, what really jumped out at me there is that you used the term industrial strategy instead of the more familiar industrial policy. Mm. And it seems to be a much better way of describing what we're doing because policy doesn't <laughs> doesn't necessarily imply strategy. <laughs> um, but this right. is a strategy. It's a coherent strategy. It's, it is. It is. I, I think about that term a lot because, you know, I teach business strategy often to my MBAs where you set an objective and you allocate resources and set priorities to reach that objective. And we understand what some of the objectives are uh, for the United States of America. And I give 
President Biden a ton of credit for that, you know, setting clear objectives with regards to our climate, with regards to um, de developing new technologies to make us more secure and to bring back manufacturing. And when you put all those things as the objectives, then you start to think about how to allocate resources. And again, you know, he did things people didn't think he could do, right? He signed a bipartisan CHIPS Act. He signed the Inflation, Inflation Reduction Act. He signed the Infrastructure Bill, another bipartisan one, uh, including sort of, um, you know, a Stimulus Act at the beginning. So all these different bills getting signed at a time people thought we were hopelessly polarized, they constitute the resource allocation decisions. And that's guiding the strategy to reach a certain objective. And that's what you're seeing on the ground. And those pieces are in play. There's going to be lots of opportunities and challenges to pursue. It's going to fill my dance card up for a long time just to kind of help out and make sure these things are successful. But Goldie, I think it's a strategy that's, uh, that's starting to pay off. And we're already seeing the benefits here in North Carolina. Super cool. Can you speak for a minute to the intersection of the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, chips and infrastructure? Because, you know, one of the things that we've talked about a lot on the podcast is that, you know, when you add all this stuff up, also including the, uh, uh, the American Rescue Plan, it's the most economic legislation any president has passed. Holy crap, maybe since Eisenhower or something like that. But it all fits together in this pretty cool way. Certainly the IRA and chips fit together in a really, in a really important and real way. Can you speak to that? I'd be happy to. And I'm glad you also mentioned the American Rescue Plan. I, I, I should have named it more specifically in my last comment, but it's a key part of the puzzle and something I've been proud to, to support as well. I mean, I think when you look at it, we have to reindustrialize the United States of America, both to build back uh, our economic prowess, but also become more secure from a national security perspective. And if we're going to reindustrialize, um, we're going to have to do it in a way that's less carbon intensive than what we did in the past. We've done this in America before, if you remember, right? After World War II, um, the CHIPS example is a good one. We invested in a number of strategic sectors. But a couple of things that we need to do better this time is um, we need to make sure that we're decarbonizing and reducing carbon emissions as we do that. And we need to benefit more people, right, and a broader set of Americans uh, in our industrial strategy. And so when you put together the CHIPS, the Inflation Reduction Act, the American Rescue Plan and the infrastructure bill, you're seeing the pillars of such a strategy. I think infrastructure, in my mind, is one of the most important down payments you can make in America. It's a way to make sure that we move people and ideas at 21st century speed. And so if we're gonna make stuff in America, you have to be able to move stuff in America. And that's where infrastructure is gonna be really, really important. I think when you think about chips, they're the linchpin of every industry and input into every key industry, anything that requires the on and off switch we talked about earlier. So if we have a foothold in the chips industry, that's gonna be really, really important to reindustrializing the entire uh, United States of America, uh, the, the American economy. And then of course, if we're gonna decarbonize, we're gonna need new technologies, uh, we're gonna need new technologies in solar, in wind, in carbon capture across the board. And we're gonna to need to manufacture those here and make sure we have robust trading relationships with partners and allies to make sure we procure the supplies we need. And if you look at every aspect of the Biden agenda, that is how they fit together. And uh, I think it was an accomplishment to get it passed legislatively. It's going to take another big lift to implement this stuff altogether. And that's really what I've been focused on. And I'm very interested in going forward. You know, the darndest thing is if when you think about it, it makes you optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> we could do big things. We could do big things. No, I, it's, I feel the same way, Nick. It's we could do big it, things. It's insane. It's insane. But, you know, like, if only people knew. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the other challenge. I agree yeah. with you. Uh, yeah. I don't know, Nick. I, I've been told the government should never pick winners and losers. <laughs> yeah. And in this case, you know, 
the Biden administration is clearly the the winner they're picking is the American people, and that just seems wrong to me. That's up that's up to the market to yeah. decide. Yeah, that's, I mean, and Goldie, you're right. I mean, I think the other thing we should do, I think, is just continue to have discussions with folks on industrial strategy, these particular initiatives. And you're right, a lot of people have this picking your winners, picking winners or losers, like the you know the one liner the folks have. But you start to double click on that. And you realize that, you know, people are less familiar with the arguments, the counterarguments underneath that, because it's been a long time since we had this debate in America. And and I've read a ton about this and continue to read a ton about these debates. And I'm talking to people all around the country about it. We just need to engage folks and, and show them the evidence about what's working and also be uh, upfront when it's not. You know, there's yeah. going to be. Oh, there'll be failures. And failures. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And um, we, we've learned a lot from the failures of the past. And so I think with some humility as well, um, we're going to be able to make progress. And, uh, and I, again, I think a lot of this has bipartisan support, which is great. And uh, if we can deliver on it. Hopefully we'll build coalitions for future um, industrial strategy pieces as well. So let's just stipulate that President Biden is reelected and go way out on a limb. And let's say that Democrats retained both houses. But I guess my question is, if you had the political power in the next, in the next cycle, what else would you do? with respect to this stuff? Like what, what didn't get done that you wish had gotten done in this space? Yes. I mean, there are two key things I would do. One's going to be a boring one that I think is necessary. And the other one's going to be a more interesting one. The boring one is we do need to finish the job on implementation. Uh, you know, it's been said elsewhere, but like, yeah. this is the most important, but most boring part of politics. We pass the bill and then people forget about it. And they say, whatever happened there? And then when we do the impact evaluations, the evidence building later, we find out that we did not achieve our goals. And in this case, we need to keep folks who care about this focused on the implementation. I'll give you one quick example. Workforce, right? We can cut a lot of ribbons and say we're opening a factory. We can talk about labor shortages or skill issues, whatever language people have used. But at the end of the day, if we don't train enough people in America to work in these jobs, if we don't create good jobs, we're not going to be able to fulfill the goals of the strategy. And what President Biden has done won't have the impact that we think it will unless we have the workers. And so getting that part right, it's a multi-year process. It's something we got to keep going with. And if we had yeah. um, control uh, of those levers of government and we were able to pass an agenda to do more on workforce investment and training to help the implementation of all these bills, that would be, to me, uh, a number one priority. The, the second thing I think is there are other critical industries, um, in particular discussions around artificial intelligence and quantum, where we're going to need to take a careful look over our competitive position, uh, what our partners and allies are doing, what our rivals are doing, and make necessary investments against those to make sure we retain, in many cases, our technological lead and where there's manufacturing implications in other industries, uh, manufacturing applications as well. And in cases where we've fallen behind, uh, we need to catch up and, and, and take the lead. So I think there's a whole set of critical technologies that go beyond chips. Some of them are chips adjacent that we're going to need to build a, a new industrial strategy for. Some of them are going to be very manufacturing intensive and some of them are highly technological, but could eventually uh, end up uh, scaling in manufacturing as well. So those are the areas that I'd like to focus on. And I think, honestly, you're going to have a lot of folks interested across both uh, political parties in that agenda. They might attack it from different angles, but I think there's actually a lot of room for common ground too. Yeah, that's great. So, uh, Ronnie, one final question. Why do you do this work? I do this work because of what I saw in North Carolina with the confluence of investments that are going to change people's lives. I have this this funny thing where whenever I see these businesses start, I always think about the little league team 
And I used to play Little League where I grew up, and the teams were sponsored by local businesses. And it meant something to play for the local business and have that on your shirt. And I would ask my my friends, you know, kind of what what business do you have there, and where do your parents work? And you know, everybody was connected to one of the local institutions. And I think about these companies that are locating in my backyard now. I think about the civic involvement they're going to do, the families that are going to come here and are already here who will benefit from them. And I see communities getting built that are going to be really prosperous and uh, and vibrant and diverse. And I'm like, this is why we do the work. It's This is why we pass the bills. This is why we have a strategy so we can see the impact on the ground in places like North Carolina, but also across the country. Seeing the connection between the macro and the micro is why I became an economist and why I like to do things both in government and in business, because I think you can, you can scale impact that way. So that's why I'm here. That's fantastic. Okay, cool. buddy. Thank All you right, so much you for being with us. I got to admit, Nick, I didn't do a lot of prep uh, getting into this like I do. When we talk to an author, I like to read the book. I like yeah, to know what we're talking sure. about. Uh, I I tried to uh, understand the Chips Act from reading what was in the uh, the mainstream press. But man, now I think I really understand it. Yeah. And it's so cool. The early returns are incredibly favorable, but it's not... It's not hard to understand why nobody really knows, right? Like right. it is as wonky a piece of legislation as you could imagine. And I think on the Nick, on the surface, it looks like, oh, just another typical, we're going to invest in this thing. Like it's no different from investing in bridges or yeah. roads or whatever. It's government money going to big corporations. And so it doesn't sound exciting to people. But I think what jumped out at me, there were two specific things. One is, and we talked about it a bit, this difference between strategy and policy. And what's absolutely clear, uh, both with the CHIPS Act and the Inflation Reduction Act and the Infrastructure Act and everything else the administration is doing, there is an actual strategy uh, guiding uh, what Uh, the president is now calling Bidenomics. Uh, There's a strategy behind this, and that is very different from having just a bunch of policies. That's right. That's right. And the CHIPS Act falls squarely within the Bidenomics slash middle economics framework of making really important investments in our material and social capacity as Americans, right? Right. And and with the end being benefiting the American people, and that's why... Uh, there's such an emphasis on training. That's why there's such an emphasis on uh, uh, job standards and pay, why things like childcare are important. And it's a it's it's a cycle. It's a virtuous cycle that not only does it benefit workers to have childcare available, but it benefits the employers because there's a shortage of workers. And this right. is one of the ways to get uh, qualified people back into the workforce That's working right. full time because they can then afford to take care of their children. That's right. I think the other thing that stood out to me, and this is something we didn't discuss as directly and that is, and this is getting back, you know, I, I, I jokingly bring up Econ 101 a lot and getting back to the textbooks. And one of the things that the market is supposed to do is efficiently allocate resources. That's one of the alleged benefits of the market is efficiency. Allegedly, government is inefficient. That's why you don't want it picking winners and losers. The market is efficient. Whether that's true or not, 
uh, is not the point here. The point here is that there's a difference between efficiency and resiliency. And what we've built over the past 40 years with this emphasis on efficiency, on cost cutting and efficiency, and that's what leads to a lot of the outsourcing and offshoring is we created a not very resilient economy. And we saw that in the pandemic. When you don't have resiliency, everything can collapse at once. So if you're not manufacturing chips here and the Chinese shut down their plants or hoard the chips for themselves or hoard uh, the masks and, and so forth for themselves and we don't have it here, everything grinds to a halt. And so a lot of this strategy is about building resiliency in the American economy, even if maybe it costs a little more. Yeah. And, and just to be clear, when we talk about efficiency, because that word is used so often. Yeah. What we were really talking about was capital efficiency, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. We were talking about returns on invested capital. And of course, the big problem with capitalism is the maniacal focus on capital to the exclusion of all else. Uh, resiliency, uh, sustainability, paying people enough to get by without food stamps, all these things, you know, being excluded from that. And so, you know, this is just such an exciting turn away from that neoliberal market fundamentalist paradigm towards a much, almost certainly be a much um, more successful way of generating broad-based prosperity for everybody. In any case, what a cool thing to have been part of and to have accomplished. And, and uh, we'll have to talk to Ronnie more about it in the future. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunk Works and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.